0: We're going to look at this passage tonight under the title, Journey of Salvation. And this passage about Jesus being taken into Egypt for His safety and then returning, it's a passage that is structured around three different Old Testament prophecies, or three different prophecies. We have, first of all, the Exodus in verses 13 to 15. And why did Mary and Joseph, take Jesus into Egypt? Well, we can answer that in three different ways. We can say they took Jesus into Egypt in order to keep him safe from Herod. They took Jesus into Egypt also because God told them so. But the other reason is they took Jesus into Egypt. It was to fulfill God's prophecy. If you look there at verse 15, it says, And he remained there unto the death of Herod, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. And what we're seeing here is that every part of the Christmas story, including Jesus having to be taken to Egypt, was all part of God's plan. And it had to happen because God had planned it would happen. And this shows us one of the amazing things about God is that His plans will be perfectly worked out. Even in a world of evil, even in a world of opposition, God's plans will be perfectly worked out. Now, here in this verse 15, that quote, out of Egypt I called my son, that is taken from Hosea 11 and verse 1. And that's a passage in which Hosea speaks of God's faithfulness to Israel in the past in bringing them out of Egypt in the days of Moses. There Hosea speaks of how God, cares for Israel, like a a father caring for his child. It's a very tender passage speaking about God's care for His people. And yet, despite all of God's faithfulness, Israel would be like a constantly disobedient son. But in Jesus going into Egypt in order to come out again, something was happening here. There's a message here. Jesus is mirroring the journey of Israel at the time of the exodus. this was no accident. This is very deliberate, a deliberate part of God's plan, and it's highlighted here as being part of God's plan. And this was to show us that Jesus is the new Moses, leading God's people into an even greater exodus, bringing them deliverance from the bondings of Satan and of sin. Do you remember that amazing story when Jesus was transfigured up the mountain with Peter, James, and John? He was changed into this glorious brightness. Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared, and they spoke to Jesus about His departure. The word was actually His exodus. And even Moses knew that Jesus was going to lead His people in an exodus. Now, the exodus under Moses was a truly wonderful event. We think of the, the ten amazing plagues, the gnats, the flies, the, the frogs, and all that, the water into blood. We think of the, the Passover when the firstborns were killed. And then we think of the amazing crossing of the Red Sea. So, it truly was a wonderful event, that original exodus. But the exodus that Jesus would lead His people in would be even more glorious. Now, not necessarily more glorious in the miracles that would accompany it, although we think of Jesus' ministry and as the exodus He has with all the miracles of His ministry, We have when he died, there was a darkness that came over the land. There's people being raised from the dead. When he died, there was a temple veil being torn in two. And then we have his resurrection on the third day. So, there were amazing miracles that accompanied this exodus as well. Now, outwardly, which exodus, Moses' exodus or Jesus' exodus, which was the more awesome by the miracles, that's debatable. But this is not debatable. Where Jesus' exodus is definitely more glorious is what it produces, is the impact that would have on people's lives. Now, you think of what Moses did. He led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness, and then eventually Joshua leads them into the Promised Land. But despite all that God did for His people, they remained a very sinful, complaining, and disobedient people, like which Hosea speaks about in Hosea 11. Moses' exodus didn't really deal with the people's sin. But Jesus' exodus, on the other hand, would deal wonderfully with sin. His death and resurrection have a power within them. And when that power is applied by the Holy Spirit to a sinner's soul, they're made into a new creation. They're made into a new person. And they're enabled more and more by God's grace to leave behind the life of sin as they grow and mature in their relationship with Christ. Israel was that disobedient Son in Hosea 11, the disobedient Son coming out of Egypt. Jesus would be the perfectly obedient Son, the Son whose righteousness would please God and whose righteousness would bring, would be brought to multitudes. Just think about this. Hosea 11 speaks of, I have called my Son out of Egypt who's that referring to? In a sense, it's referring to Israel of old, but it's also, Matthew tells us, referring to Jesus. And what we see here is the unity between Israel and Jesus. And Jesus becomes one, not only with His people, but Jesus becomes one with His sinful people, in order to consume and take upon Himself their sin, and so that they would then be consumed and transformed as they take upon His righteousness. And that's really what Matthew is getting at here. Israel of old were always falling, always sinning, always failing, but Jesus comes to make a new Israel, to be one with them, to deal with their sin, and to change them from being a disobedient people to being an obedient people as they walk in Christ. So here we have the exodus. Jesus leads a new exodus, deliverance from the slavery of sin. And then we have the opposition in verses 16 to 18. Herod was furious at being tricked, And immediately, he sets in place this plan to kill Jesus by killing all the baby boys under the age of two in the Bethlehem region. And here we see something of the depravity, something of the rebellion of the human heart. Even though a star in the sky spoke of the birth of this new king, even though God put that star in the sky to speak of it, even though the Word of God testified to him being born in Bethlehem, even though this was clearly all God's will and God's plan for this baby to be the new king, Herod still thinks he can fight against God and His will. I don't know if you've ever been involved yourself, or you've seen an adult maybe wrestling or fighting with a wee child, and uh, the child is wanting to hit the adult, and the adult just stretches their long arm out and puts it on the child's head. And the child is really swinging the arms trying to hit them, and they can do nothing because they're just too far away, and they're kept at a distance. And in many ways, I think that's a picture of, what Herod is trying to do. He's like that little child, swinging and trying to hit God. But God is keeping him at a distance. But if you ever see that happen with a little child, sometimes the wee child just gets crosser and crosser and crosser. The temper just goes and goes goes even worse. That's what we see happening here in the story of Herod what we see is that in every step, God was so far ahead of him. He couldn't land a blow. God has warned the wise men. God has warned Joseph repeatedly in dreams. Now, we need to be constantly reminded that we're involved in a spiritual battle, and we know that Christmas Day, is a day that's cozy. It's a day we like to just think of nice things, but we can never forget that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And Satan particularly attacks when things are starting, when something new is beginning. Here it was at the start of Jesus' life when His life was, in a sense, most vulnerable, but it can happen also at the start of a a Christian's life, or it can be at the start of a new outreach venture, or it can be a new stage in someone's life. Often at those key moments, that is when the devil chooses to attack. If you remember the story of Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim comes to the narrow gate, he knocks on the door of the narrow gate and the door is opened by a man called Goodwill who immediately pulls him in really quickly, really abruptly. And Pilgrim wonder what is happening here? And Goodwill just reminds him that the devil's castle is nearby and often he tries and kills those who come to the door before they even get in. Just as they're about to go in through the narrow gate, the devil will seek to destroy. And we need to be aware of that. That's why we next. to pray for new Christians and pray that God will protect them. We think also when we are involved in church mission or outreach events, I've seen it over the years, uh, particularly I think some of the times when we did outreach teams in the past, it's uh, amazing the things that happen. You don't have to tell people involved in outreach that the devil is real. We, you can see him being so busy, so active, and seeking to disrupt and to harm. Often, maybe it's after even maybe a holiday. Maybe you've had a good holiday and you're going to start again, working and in serving the Lord. Maybe it's a new term or it's a new period of service, and you're just ready to go. And then something happens, as a sense pulls the rug from under your feet. The timing is never accident, accidental. At the beginning, at these key points, these new beginnings, the devil is always active. But we verse to encourage us. First John four and verse four says this: "He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." He who is in you—that's Christ in you. He's greater than the devil who's in the world. I remember when I was at university, Thursday nights were outreach nights. There used to be a wee, I think it was a Youth for Christ cafe near Queens where the Queens CU outreach team and the Stromillis outreach team would meet together to pray before we would go into the Students' Union. They would go down to Shaftesbury Square to do outreach. And there's a real awareness that we are involved in spiritual battle, a real awareness that we couldn't do this in our own strength. And there probably wasn't a week that went by that in the midst of that prayer meeting, somebody quoted, He who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. And that's the only way we can do this Christian work. That's the only way we can live the Christian life is having that confidence that He who is in us, He who is with us, is far greater than He who is in the world. Jeremiah 31, which is quoted here, the, the lamentation of Rachel for her children, I read that earlier because if you read Jeremiah 31, while it contains that, it's a tremendous passage of hope there. In Jeremiah's prophecy, yes, it speaks of pain and suffering, but it also speaks of restoration. It speaks of how the devil will never have the last word. He tries his worst. God's always a step ahead of him or more steps ahead of him. And God will always have the final word. So, we have the exodus, we have the opposition, and then thirdly, we have the humility in verses 19 to 23. After this period in Egypt, Herod dies, and Joseph is told to return to Israel, but then he is told not to go back to Bethlehem because Herod's son Archelaus is ruling there, who seems to be in some sense a chip of the old block. Instead, Jesus is taken to Nazareth, that's Galilee in the north, and out of the the region where Archelaus was ruling, and there Jesus grows up. And look what it says in verse 23, and He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that He would be called a Nazarene. Now, here's a good question for you, and if you can tell me the right answer, I will give you an extra sweet later on, okay? Where in the Bible is this reference of Jesus being a Nazarene? Where is this prophecy that the Messiah would be a Nazarene? Now, search the Old Testament as you will. Unless I'm missing it, and most others, every other scholar is missing it as well, you will not find a reference to Jesus as the Nazarene in the Old Testament. Now, what then is Matthew talking about here? In solving this dilemma, some have suggested this was maybe a prophecy which was not written down in the Bible, but it was a prophecy from a prophet that was handed down and was well known by the people at that time. And there's a strong oral tradition of handing down uh, truth, and that is indeed feasible or possible. But I don't think that is the best solution to explaining what is meant here when it says it was prophesied that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. I think the best solution is to take the term of Jesus being a Nazarene as a slur. Uh, if you, It's maybe not as much now, but during the days of the Troubles, if you were visiting some other part of the world, even England or something, and they asked you where you were from and you said Northern Ireland, sometimes their eyes became like saucers, Northern Ireland and that. That's a place of great trouble and bombing and shooting and so forth, uh, particularly even in me growing up and people say, you come from where you come from, I if, would if say so far ma, uh, that sort of feeling as well comes. And in a sense, Nazarene, so calling someone a Nazarene was a slur. It was a term of humiliation. Think of Isaiah 53, how Jesus would be described. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So, Isaiah is saying Jesus is going to be this humiliated person. He's going to be this person who's being despised. And that's exactly what people thought Of those who came from Nazareth. Do you remember the reaction of Nathaniel, who would be one of the one of the disciples, when Philip told him that he had found the Messiah, and that the Messiah came from Nazareth? What did Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He says, "You've got to be kidding me! The Messiah from Nazareth, that good for nothing place." So, when it says here that Jesus is probably Jesus would be a Nazarene, it's saying Jesus would be a person who would be lowly esteemed, who would be despised, who would be scorned, who would be rejected, who would be humiliated. He wasn't growing up among those really good Jewish people around Jerusalem. He was growing up around those shady characters from Nazareth. He would be a Nazarene. And that just reminds us of what Jesus is all about. It reminds us that Jesus, in order to be a saviour, has come to mix with the lowest of the low. He's come to mix with the outcasts. He's come to mix with the sinful. He's come to mix with those in the gutter in order to lift us out of the gutter of our sin, to lift us from our lowly position, to be saved, to become children of God. There's a challenge here. Think of Newton's great hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, there's no hope for any of us. There's no hope for us to experience grace Until we accept, despite all the good things we try to do, that deep down in our hearts, we're wretches, we're sinful, we're stained in every part of our lives. And yet the wonderful thing, Jesus has come to be called a Nazarene. He's come to mix with the lowest. He's come for the wretches in order to lift us to glory. Christmas is only truly special when we understand that we, we are wretches, but Jesus has come to save us. So we have this journey of salvation. We have the Exodus, Jesus being the new Moses. We have the opposition, Herod and Satan doing their worst, but God always ahead, we have the humility, the Savior who comes down to be a Nazarene, to be among the lowest of the low in order to raise us to glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you just for this wonderful journey of salvation we're thinking about this evening. And Father, how wonderful it is that He who is worshipped and adored by the very angels of heaven, that He leaves that glory to come into this world, to take on the form of a human being, and to suffer and to be rejected, to mix with the lowest of the low, to die, but then to rise in order to lift the sinful like us, to wonderful glory. Lord, grant that this evening. Lord, that we would truly understand our need of Jesus. And if we have never truly come to trust in Him as Savior, Lord, to do it this evening, and then to live our lives in worship and thanksgiving for what He has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.